I'm Jason Hatcher, Managing Principal of Navigator's Western Operations. Welcome to The Western Edge, a Navigator podcast featuring the latest perspectives on Western Canada's biggest stories. This week, I'm really excited that we're launching a mini-series where we're going to look back at the year in politics across each of the Western provinces. Governments have gotten back into the business of actually governing following the tumultuous pandemic years. So we're going to take a look at how each government and opposition party is tackling the issues that are important to Western Canadians, like healthcare, affordability, and of course, we're going to chat a little bit about the political landscapes as well. To kick off the series, we are joined by Jim Billington, Associate Principal with Navigator. He's also the former Deputy Chief of Staff to Premier Scott Moe of Saskatchewan. We're diving into all things green, all things Saskatchewan, and this is The Western Edge. Well, Jim, it's great to have you. And while we dragged you kicking and screaming from Saskatchewan back to Alberta, uh, I know you spent a lot of time in Saskatchewan and uh, most recently as a senior senior, uh, senior staffer, deputy chief of staff to Premier Mo. And I know you watch Saskatchewan so closely. So why don't we hear from you about what Saskatchewan's looked like for the last year of, of Saskatchewan politics and government and tell us what kind of year it's been. Yeah, Jason, it's great to be on the podcast. Uh, excited to uh, to chat SAS politics. So why don't I start with just a bit of a, a high-level overview of Saskatchewan politics, just for uh, listeners that might not be sure. uh, o- overly aware. So um, last election for Saskatchewan was in October of 2020, where the Saskatchewan party received uh, their fourth mandate in a row. Premier Mo received his first mandate as, uh, as Premier of the Saskatchewan party uh, after uh, taking over from Brad Wall in uh, 2018. So the Saskatchewan party has a uh, massive majority in the legislature right now. Uh, there's 61 seats. Uh, the Saskatchewan party has 48. Uh, the New Democrats have 11. And there is a single independent uh, sitting in the legislature in Saskatchewan. So in terms of where the Saskatchewan party is and Premier Mo is in their mandate, they're about halfway through. So now is really the meat and potatoes time of policy making. Um, so in terms of the last year, there's been lots going on. The Saskatchewan First Act, uh, first and foremost, comes to mind. There's been a lot of uh, talk on the prairies about sovereignty and about uh, autonomy, economic autonomy in Saskatchewan. It's been a major focus for Premier Mo. Uh, and like elsewhere in the country, uh, Saskatchewan is uh, really grappling with uh, two main issues, healthcare and affordability. Uh, it's it's not unique from uh, from other provinces in that regard. So in terms of, of your interview and setting up Saskatchewan politics, that's that's really where the province is today. So there's a couple of key issues. Obviously, we want to want to dive into. Before we get into some of those specifics, though, this is the fourth mandate for the Saskatchewan Party, and if I'm not mistaken, you know that formed uh, really as a as a unity party between uh, different groups. In fact, some might be surprised uh, the former Liberal Party there, and obviously Brad Wall had a great deal of success in Saskatchewan. It's well known um, and leading the Saskatchewan Party to their first two mandates. But what a lot of our listeners may not realize is just how successful Premier Mo has been since taking over the helm. In fact, he's, he's if I'm not mistaken, Jim, he's maintained pretty much the same level of popularity and support and, and seats as, uh, as his predecessor, Brad Wall. That's right. So, I mean, uh, fourth majority Saskatchewan party is now, you know, in, in dynasty Um area and so that that just gives a picture of really the electoral dominance over the past uh, 15 years of the saskatchewan party a, a part of it is only 25 years old now what do you I, credit I mean, that to jim like sorry to interrupt you but what did you what do you credit that to you know i'm very different styles 
in terms of the two premiers uh, from from Premier Wall and Premier to Premier Mo. But equally effective, what do you attribute this to? And, and maybe what do you attribute the, to the success of Premier Mo, given he came in with a, a bit of a different style and, and followed uh, a big personality? Let's be blunt. Yeah, and I think in 2018, when uh, when Premier Mo took over, uh, there really were a lot of questions for us about how the Saskatchewan party would continue post-Brad Wall. <laughs> I mean, up to that point, the, the brand of the Saskatchewan party was intricately tied uh, to the brand of Premier Wall. Right. He was incredibly popular, incredibly charismatic. <laughs> uh, if you've had the opportunity to see him speak, he is a truly times, gifted absolutely. speaker. And, you know, much like Alberta uh, post Peter Lougheed, there's questions about how, how do you fill how do you fill that once that um, once that personality isn't there anymore? The way that uh, Scott, the way that Premier Mo approached it, he wasn't going to try to replicate what Brad Wall had done. Uh, as far as he was concerned, he had a tremendous caucus. He still had Brad's team. He still had the cabinet, the caucus that Brad had put together that he was a part of. Uh, he leveraged that. He used it as his greatest asset. Uh, he really views caucus as an asset. He doesn't view them as a third-party stakeholder group that needs to be consulted now and then. So he's taken that collaborative team-building style that has really worked for him. We're seeing that more and more with success across the country. We're seeing more and more premiers, I think, relying on their caucus in a different way rather than trying to manage around them. Um, but that's that's interesting because that's really what Mo, Premier Mo started doing right from the get-go. It's probably how he won the leadership. Absolutely. And and he did have massive caucus uh, endorsements throughout the leadership he had. Uh, I think it was 23 that we had, which is the largest number of any any of the leadership candidates. And I think, you know, part of part of Scott's personality is that he could very well be your next door neighbor, the guy that's going to shovel you out from a blizzard when that happens, the guy that you want to call over when, you know, your furnace uh, blows out in the middle of a blizzard. Um, and so uh, that that everyman approach to leadership uh, is really who Scott is, and that collaboration team building is really who he is. And so he's he's leveraged that quite effectively, I think. He's now the uh, most popular premier in the country as, and has maintained that generally throughout the entire term. Uh, of course, there was a bit of a blip through COVID, as there was for all provincial premiers, but he's uh, back to pre-COVID levels in terms of popularity. Um, and I think another interesting Part of this, which is probably a bit of a commentary on the turnover at the provincial level for the premiers, he's now also the longest serving provincial premier at the premier's table uh, with the resignation of John Horgan. Yukon Premier Sandy Silver is uh, longer serving uh, territorial premier, but in terms of the provinces, he's now the uh, longest serving premier at that table. You know, it seems now we're into the second mandate for Premier Mo. Um, it's it, just looking from the outside, whether it be you know, on on the Saskatchewan First Act, whether it be healthcare, whether it be uh, carbon pricing for heavy emitters, it really appears that the, with this large majority that Premier Mo and the Saskatchewan caucus has really been able to establish their agenda and really continue it moving forward right through COVID with great effect. And that's something to be commended. You've mentioned he hasn't seemed to have lost that guy next door, neighbor next door. But there was a bit of a hiccup, and I have to ask you, and you might ring your fist at me a little bit over the camera here, but but I do have to ask because it, it stood out. And I think all Canadians really saw it. During the speech from the throne this fall, uh, a former Saskatchewan cabinet minister named Colin Thatcher, who some people may know on this, some of our listeners may know, was convicted of a first-degree murder charge in 1984 for the death of his ex-wife. He actually attended the speech from the throne, which which shocked a lot of observers, I think both within Saskatchewan and from the outside as well. 
what went on there, Jim? We know he wasn't a guest of the Premier or the party, and that, that's been clearly established, to be fair, to Premier Mo. But what happened? Because on the outside, this looks like a, a strange thing at, at, at best and, and, and a, a big mistake, probably by a lot of people's accounts. Well, I mean, uh, we're, we're, you know, both well-versed in crisis communications and, and in uh, political communications. And I think you uh, you expect a number of, if I can be blunt, oh shit moments um, throughout uh, political communications and crisis communications. Uh, I can say for those staff in the Premier's office, that was certainly one of them. They did not know that uh, that uh, Mr. Thatcher was going to be attending uh, like you said, that wasn't an invite from the premier's office. It was an MLA uh, that that brought him. Um, and I think, in terms of how it was handled, obviously, you know that's that's worst case scenario for a government. Throne speech should be an opportunity for you to be able to tout your legislative agenda over the next year. Um, and at, ultimately, that really detracted from that message and took away from it. Did they act uh, quickly enough? Did the premier's office act, act quickly enough? And I, again, I don't mean to interrupt you, but you know, especially look this day and age, this these things cannot go without scrutiny and should be called out. Absolutely, and I, I think the the apology came. It came from the premier. He took personal responsibility for it, even though that invitation wasn't from him. You know, it could be it could be debated whether that came quick enough. I, I think one of the keys in those situations is that you have to stop the bleeding. But ultimately, they did. He took responsibility, which is the right thing to do. Um, as as the premier, uh, the buck stops with you, and uh, and that's the position that he took. Yeah, and, igno- and acknowledging acknowledging the error and, and owning it. I think uh, I think those are good points. So let's maybe move across the aisle for a moment before we get get into the policies, just to, to continue to set the political stage for our listeners uh, um, who may be listening from Saskatchewan or elsewhere across the country. Um, we have a, a newer leader uh, for the Saskatchewan NDP. They are the official opposition in uh, in Saskatchewan, I believe, with eleven seats. It's forty eight SAS party, eleven. Uh, the NDP. Now, the NDP have, li- have lost one of the strongholds in northern Saskatchewan, which I think uh, maybe even led to the to the leadership change, or at least was a, a final step in that process. Tell us a little bit about Carla Beck, the leader there. Uh, I think she's a multi-term MLA. Yeah, that's right. So um, you you referenced the northern Saskatchewan constituency that the NDP lost. That that's the constituency of Athabasca, which is a stronghold for a very very long time of the NDP. And really, it's it's a ride in the Saskatchewan party has no business being competitive in, let alone winning. So there was a there's a by election um, last uh, February where the Saskatchewan party at, ended up actually winning. Uh, there had been questions about the former uh, leader of the NDP, uh, Ryan Miley, questions about his leadership, about his uh, caucus unity under him, about his policies, his handling of, of COVID, and whether he was on side with really mainstream Saskatchewan concerns. And I think you're right. That really was seen as as, as the last straw for him. You got a, a government uh, trying to win a by-election midterm in a, in a stronghold for for the NDP. That that's a real credit, I think, or a real commentary on 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 both the Saskatchewan Party and, and Premier's most leadership. What's been the change since that change in leadership? How has Carla Beck uh, begin to establish herself? So Carla Beck uh, has come in, and I I do think she has been been able to differentiate herself from uh, the previous leader and the, and the issues that he had. One of the things about the NDP caucus, I mean, it's small, uh, but they are motivated uh, to see progress both politically and policy-wise uh, within the within the <clears throat> province. Um, and with that motivation, sometimes uh, comes a bit of an unruly spirit, heated debates around the caucus table, I understand. And I think what Carla Beck has been able to do is really get that caucus unity 
behind her and behind her leadership. The second thing I think she's been able to do effectively to her credit, and I'm by no means a Saskatchewan NDP supporter, but I think you have to be able to identify the things that they're doing well. Uh, she's been able to pivot the NDP past those uh, smaller boutique issues that really matter to the NDP's voter base and voter coalition, which is very small in Saskatchewan. She's pivoted past those boutique issues and I think has really focused on the more mainstream high-level concerns of Saskatchewan residents, be that urban Saskatchewan or rural Saskatchewan residents. Healthcare and affordability are two that come to mind like everywhere else in the nation. Um, and she has really taken up that mantle of focusing on those. Do I think it's enough to, to make a difference short-term? No, um, but politics is all about opportunity. And when those opportunities come around, you have to have a base of credibility, which I think she is building at this point. Well, you know, you mentioned the caucus management. I've I've heard it described as a small but mighty caucus right now that is is starting to to punch above its weight. And you know, well, I well I accept with a, a little smirk that uh, there's not much NDP support in Saskatchewan. History has shown us there's lots of potential support and lots of historical support for the NDP. Uh, what do you think they need to do? We've got she's really seemed to Carla back has seemed to have really unified caucus, and that is always one of the first keys in success, right? We know from Navigator's own research that voters across this country do not like infighting, they do not like dissent. Now that Miss Beck has got that sort of everybody on the same page and 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 and, and endorsing, supporting, and 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 empowering her leadership, what do they need to do now to make some inroads in what has become, as you said, a, a bit of a fortress uh, SAS party? First and foremost, she has to be able to differentiate herself um, from the previous mistakes of the NDP. Now, we're talking like mistakes going back 15 to 20 years. So we're, but... they're still defending, uh, you know, government's past, so to speak. The the NDP, and that's something the Saskatchewan party has done incredibly effectively, is keeping those issues alive. The fact that they closed hospitals, they closed schools, nurses left, doctors left, teachers left the province. And with that flight of, from the province ultimately comes a flight of people. You know, uh, 10 years, 11 years after the first um, Saskatchewan party government, we were still able to use those lines in question period uh, in response to the NDP. It drives them crazy, absolutely crazy. But in terms of what actually resonates with Saskatchewan people, that is still fresh in their minds. And so for Carla Beck uh, to start to gain traction, she has to differentiate herself from those decisions. And I, I think part of that and part of their strategy is, okay, well, those same issues, healthcare, education, affordability, you know, population decline, how do we start pinning that on the SAS party? How do we start um, uh, making their greatest strengths into their greatest weaknesses? Like I said earlier, I don't see that being a very easy task for them by any stretch. I think the Saskatchewan party has tremendous momentum, uh, but that's certainly the formula that, uh, that the NDP are looking at. Well, it's certainly going to be interesting to watch, especially with the newer leader for the NDP. Uh, it sounds like they need to be a little more forward-facing in terms of maybe presenting policies in, in a forward-looking manner, if you will, which is always it's always tough so far out from an election to start really start doing that. But it does seem that uh, Carla Beck uh, and the the NDP party in Saskatchewan have kind of returned to that prairie pragmatist version of the NDP that we've seen have tremendous success, frankly, 
now all across uh, the Prairie Provinces and all the way over to British Columbia as well. But let's get into what you just said. Um, lots of policy, lots going on. We're midterm now, so the heavy lifting is in full flight um, for the Saskatchewan Party. Look, there's been a lot of talk in the last three to six months in Canada about a potential Alberta Sovereignty Act that the new premier there is going to be introducing. But Saskatchewan's way ahead of Alberta on this one. Uh, the Saskatchewan First Act was introduced earlier this year. Jim, can you give us a little context what led into that, what this act means? Are we expect, uh, I, We're not expecting succession planning here for, for Saskatchewan, I don't think. I think we, we, we accept that. But what's going on with this act and, and what does it mean for, the, for Saskatchewan and for the country? Yeah, and I, I think in terms of, you know, kind of the setup for this um, and likely uh, continued uh, critique of the Saskatchewan NDP and where, where the premium of the Saskatchewan party actually see there being political risk, they don't see it on, on the left side of the party or, or on the center side. They really see it on the right. And particularly through COVID, you know, I, I think we saw it, some unhappiness uh, and um, disappointment from uh, from conservatives about pandemic measures that were put in place. Uh, the Premier is aware of that. The Saskatchewan Party are well aware of that. And I think the last thing they want to see is any flaking of support from the the right flank of, uh, of the party towards other upstart parties. So one of the things the Premier did going out throughout the summer of uh, 2022 was he started a series of town halls specific to the uh, issue of autonomy, talking about how does Saskatchewan um, strengthen our position as an autonomous province within Canada. Uh, and I think, you know, this is really in response to an initial problem Um the problem being uh, Scott Mull and the Saskatchewan Party have been banging against the carbon tax and banging against the federal government on a number of topics without any real meaningful progress. The carbon tax is still in place. You know, Bill C-69 is still there. The Liberals are still in Ottawa. So as a government, you know, if you've been doing this for the past five years without progress, how do you start to demonstrate that you're still taking action on those uh, federal policies that are uh, incredibly unpopular in the province? Uh, is the, the Saskatchewan First Act, I think, is really an answer to that. So uh, what this act does uh, is it does two things. First and foremost, uh, it's legislation uh, to amend the Saskatchewan Act, which is Saskatchewan's portion of the Canadian Constitution, right. kind of Saskatchewan's Constitution, if you will. And right. if you remember uh, back about a year ago, Quebec had the same discussion about amending the Quebec Constitution uh, unilaterally, which the Prime Minister ultimately came out and said, yeah, I think they have the the ability to do that. They have the jurisdiction to do that under Section 45 of the Canadian Constitution. Saskatchewan is saying, okay, well, if Quebec can do it, why can't we? So they're looking at defining areas of exclusive legislative jurisdiction to the province, really uh, re redefining and reinforcing uh, provincial jurisdiction within Saskatchewan. So they're looking at defining the exploration for non-renewable natural resources, along with the development, conservation, and management of those resources, and the operation of sites and facilities for the generation and production of, uh, of electrical energy. Uh, Defining that as exclusive provincial jurisdiction within the Constitution. Can they do this? You know, there's constitutional debate amongst legal scholars, but the fact of the matter is it's something concrete that they can point to. The second part of this act is that it creates an economic impact assessment tribunal. Essentially, the mandate of this tribunal will be to 
evaluate and review federal policies and determine the economic scope of how those policies are impacting uh, the provincial jurisdiction and the provincial economy. Why do you think it, 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 it is this was this a really big deal in Saskatchewan, the way the Alberta Sovereignty Act or within Canada Act or whatever it's going to be named when it actually comes out? We've, there's been so much churn, as we've talked about on this on this show before, in this podcast before, about an act that hasn't been seen yet in Alberta. But, you know, look, uh, Justice Minister and Attorney General Harry said when she introduced it, you know, it's time to draw the line and assert her constitutional rights. It's it, very similar language that we've heard in other places. How did this play out in Saskatchewan? Do I mean people in Saskatchewan are proud, proud Canadians, as as we all know? Should this be equated to sovereignty or independence? And and is there any real appetite for that in Saskatchewan? Do you think there has been a, a very conscious effort uh, to talk about economic autonomy uh, right. as opposed as opposed to sovereignty? So where um, Daniel Smith, now Premier Smith, where she was talking about you know, disregarding federal laws and disregarding Supreme Court decisions um, during the UCP leadership race, along with reinforcing some of our economic jurisdiction. Uh, where that has taken place in Alberta, it's been solely focused on economic autonomy in Saskatchewan. I think that's helped them really avoid some of that uh, uncertainty around the implementation of the Act. Uh, the Premier has been laser-focused on investment attraction and on economic stability do you think the act in any way has taken away from that attraction investment has there been any pushback from investment uh from outside the province from outside the country uh, or concern expressed i don't think there has been and i think that that's because they've been very intentional on actually framing this on providing economic stability within Saskatchewan. If you are coming in and looking at making a billion dollar investment in your province in Saskatchewan, you want to be able to know that that is going to last for the full lifetime of the asset of whatever you're investing in. Uh, with the uncertainty around federal uh, climate policy and some federal economic policies, the province is arguing that certainty has been taken away. So let's give it back uh, to investors. Let's give it back to our major industries by saying, we will protect you. We will protect your investments uh, by enshrining this in provincial legislation and as part of Saskatchewan's constitution. So let's look at how the federal and provincial government is getting along. It seems to be the dominant theme right now across Canadian politics in this post-COVID era is as we see, you see a, a kind of a new era of interprovincial and federal relations. The government, the federal government, is is moving forward with a plan to reduce emissions from fertilizer. They're reducing emissions, trying to reduce emissions across the country, as we all know. But but specifically in this case, they're they're looking at reducing uh, emissions from fertilizers in the country by thirty percent by twenty thirty. We also have a new backdrop in the last year with the horrible events that are going on in Ukraine and, frankly, the war in Ukraine uh, based on the Russian invasion there, which has really hampered food production efforts in the, in the country. And, and let's be honest, Russia has refused to, to abide by a lot of the, the terms and conditions of agreements that would have seen some of those food exports uh, grow. This is going to put pressure on the Canadian breadbasket. It's an it's an important opportunity. But it's also going to put pressure. How's the provincial response been to what's a fairly aggressive target, I think? And, and we know that climate change is, is one of the great challenges of our time. Well, I, I think the, the backdrop of Russia's aggression in, in Ukraine and the war in Ukraine um, and the instability that has created on a global scale 
uh, is incredibly relevant for this. Um, one of the things the Premier talks about consistently is that Saskatchewan produces the food, fuel, and fertilizer that the world needs. Uh, and that uh, the war in Ukraine has has only increased that, that importance on a global scale. Uh, so let's talk about the food aspect. Saskatchewan does produce a massive amount of uh, of the world's food. You know, when you look at grain shipments, when you look at canola shipments, um, Saskatchewan is is a world leader in the agriculture sector. Um, a lot of that has to do because of the, because of the progressive farming practices that are uh, that are implemented in Saskatchewan. Fertilizer use is one of those, uh, and uh, when you're looking at the uh, crop yields that are necessary to support a global uh, food supply, um, reducing fertilizer is absolutely nothing uh, to help that global food supply. If, if anything, it only risks it greater. And so in terms of the provincial response from uh, from Saskatchewan, I think they're looking at this target as incredibly arbitrary. I think they think it was picked out of a hat, 30% is a nice round number, uh, was implemented on on us with uh, with no um, uh, with no consultation, and that's really representative of how how the province views the actions of this federal government. They implement arbitrary targets with little or with meaningless consultation. So let's let's talk about that a little bit. There's been a, a this policy is created, this objective has created a lot of uncertainty. Uh, I think for Saskatchewan uh, farmers and those in the agricultural in- industry. Look, to be fair to the federal government, they've said they want to re- not reduce the use of fertilizer, but rather reduce the emissions from the uh, from the use of fertilizer. But the uncertainty I'm referring to is farmers and the, and the government of Saskatchewan as well aren't sure yet which initiatives that are already being put into place or being pioneered by the men and women who make up uh, the Saskatchewan agricultural industry. We don't know if they're going to be recognized yet. The feds haven't said it. Like We're within, I can't even say we're within 10 years. Within a few months, we're going to be within seven years of needing to to hit these objectives. And I know that there's there, the agriculture industry is pioneering uh, uh, stewardship programs like the 4R Nutrient Stewardship Framework, but we don't know yet if that's going to be recognized. Uh, the feds say they're looking at it, but how important is it to get this right from the feds perspective? Well, and, and I think I think what you said is bang on. And, I mean, Western Canadian farmers, um, they are already producing food with the most sustainable practices, I would argue, in the world. And so uh, when you are uh, going in and, and adding on additional um additional regulations to that and like you said yes this isn't a, a reduction in fertilizer use it's a reduction of emissions um you know sorry without without those details that is really heard and that's received as a reduction in fertilizer use or a restriction on fertilizer use um and so without those details uh, it's difficult for the farm community for the egg community to actually plan ahead um now like you said you know seven years Sure, it sounds like a long time if you're if you're planning budgets and when you're setting when you're setting targets. Uh, but if you're not providing uh, actual investment into that, um, you know, if you're not providing uh, investment into lowering the emissions of uh, you know fertilizer processing uh, facilities, if you're not uh, lowering the emissions of of you know the potash mines of where that fertilizer is coming from, uh, if if you're not putting dollars into research. Uh, and development and into the actual technology that it requires to reduce those emissions. That's where these arbitrary uh, 
you know, at, at accusations of arbitrary goals come from and these questions that are floating over the entire industry. Are created. Well, and, I, and I'd add our research and development. This country has been cutting back on R&D. I know there's some more investment coming now, but to set goals without, uh, you know, the research and development that's required across this country to make Canada the leader that it aspires to be in, in not just uh, the production of foods or, or energy uh, or other or, or other other resource-based economic impacts, but also to do it in a way that protects our planet and the future is critical. We need that research and development if the feds are going to be setting setting objectives, they need to, to, to back it up with that R&D. Now, I don't want to be all negative. There's been some good news. Uh, in fact, very recently, uh, in terms of the province and the federal government working together uh, on climate pricing. And in fact, uh, I think a big significant agreement was was recently announced. Yeah, that's right. And, and this is something that stood out to me. Um, the uh, province and the federal government jointly announced on November 22nd uh, that the federal government has approved Saskatchewan's output-based performance standards program in full. Uh, previously, uh, uh, electrical generation and natural gas industries in Saskatchewan uh, were not under the provincial output-based performance standards program. They're under the federal purview. What this means now uh, that the feds have actually approved the province's program is that all heavy emitters in Saskatchewan are under the, the same program. Uh, that provides the province not only savings, I think they targeted at $3.7 billion in savings in federal carbon taxes. Uh, and you mean savings, sorry, to, just for clarification, you mean savings, it doesn't mean it's not being collected, though. It, it just means that dollars, is, like in Alberta, right, that those from those heavy emitters, those those the, the 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 dollars sort of collected from a that carbon pricing will stay in Saskatchewan, right? Is that correct? Yeah, that that the that the dollars aren't staying in, in Saskatchewan, and, and actually, I think that there's a lower uh, financial burden on these companies as well because you get into yeah. the creation of a carbon offset program at the provincial level that will that will ease the financial burden on on, on some uh, on some companies. It, it also means, like you said, the the money staying within Saskatchewan. Uh, makes it a lot easier for the government of Saskatchewan to be able to distribute this money through technology funds, um, investing to further in, sort of combat climate change. Is that the idea? Exactly to, to, to further yeah. combat climate change, to further advance the good work that is going on 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 carbon emissions reductions throughout the province. And Saskatchewan is really a, a global leader in, in many of these fields. We've talked about. Uh, the egg industry's efforts, but uh, Saskatchewan's also a leader in carbon capture, utilization, and storage. Okay, so let, let's move on from the energy piece of of uh, and climate change, that interaction between the federal and provincial governments. But I'd be remiss if I didn't act about ask about one of the most important issues in this country that seems to be dominating in every province right now, and and that's healthcare. Um, healthcare is obviously Saskatchewan isn't immune to the pressures of our healthcare systems, the lineups that we all face. For our loved ones and ourselves out there, but I, I think Saskatchewan is is uh, is kind of pioneering or leading a, a sort of a new innovative way of, of, of perhaps trying to address this issue. They're not just waiting for the feds to to give to you know to ask for more money. They're doing that too. But uh, Jim, tell us a little bit about what they're up to to try to tackle this healthcare challenge and particularly the pressure on healthcare workers. There is an awareness amongst the Saskatchewan Party government that this is an urgent issue, not only because there are you know, uh, wait times from the um, from the pandemic and backlogs, uh, both within the surgical system as well as within the emergency system. But that behind that is, I think, a massive labor, labor shortage. So Saskatchewan has been quite proactive in identifying that this is something we need to fix. Uh, and they're doing that through a health human resources action plan. 
they've they've dedicated sixty million dollars uh, immediately towards uh, adding more than one thousand health professionals in the system. They've they've identified four main pillars uh, to recruit, train, incentivize, and retain uh, healthcare employees in the system. One of the items that I think is quite unique is that they are launching a dedicated mission to recruiting healthcare workers uh, from the Philippines. So later this month, later in November, uh, Health Minister Paula Merriman is going to be leading a mission uh, of uh, not just health employees, the Saskatchewan Health Authority, but also post-secondary institutions to uh, go to Manila to hold uh, town halls, to hold interviews uh, with healthcare workers and with prospective students uh, in the Philippines to not only attract uh, workers immediately, but also to build that long-term uh, workforce strategy uh, that involves the post-secondary institutions, the University of Saskatchewan, of Regina, and uh, importantly, Saskatchewan Polytechnic. So maybe addressing this riddle that has befuddled you know, Canadian government since I can remember, I can remember when I was in Ottawa 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago, uh, talking about this issue, this issue coming up in, 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 in question period of the time, and that's credentials, right? And recognizing credentials. So is this maybe a way that we're finally going to be able to start writing that? Because we've got so much opportunity around the world to bring in healthcare professionals. We desperately need it, but we need their credentials recognized so that they can move forward or give them a path to get them recognized even. Absolutely. And, and I think to give you an idea of the initial success of this program, for those 1,000 healthcare positions they've, they've identified, they've already had 3,500 applications. So later if, you're going to if we're going to be able to attract that many people from the Philippines to come to, to Canada in the middle of the winter, that's already very impressive. And it demonstrates the appetite that's out there and the potential for, uh, for Canadian provinces. That's, quite an, that's quite, quite an initiative to pioneer by Saskatchewan. You're absolutely right. And this is what I think it's going to take on a national level is that that type of innovative approach, uh, tackling things really going on the ground uh, to recruit internationally and to build a sustainable uh, recruitment and retention strategy. Well, as always, uh, Jim, really interesting things happening in Saskatchewan. So many policies, initiatives that have really frame this country have actually come out of Saskatchewan. And when we think of Medicare and the like, and, you know, seeing what they're doing now on healthcare and, uh, and it was going to be fascinating to watch. Um, it's also going to be really interesting to watch in the next year or so, as we start hitting the rubber on the road on these ambitious targets to 2030, how that's going to impact provincial uh, interprovincial federal relations. And it looks like uh, Saskatchewan is going to be at the epicenter of that. Jim, thank you as always wonderful discussion. And thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on, Jason. Western Edge is powered by Navigator, Canada's leading high-stakes public affairs firm. Our show is produced by Krista Hudson, Zoe Kirstead, and Monica Virk. I want to extend a very big thank you to our guest this week, Navigator's own Jim Billington. It was an incredible discussion about what's happening in Saskatchewan over the past year and a look ahead at what to expect in 2023. If you enjoyed this episode, follow us on Twitter at Western Edge by Nav to catch our next episode. As always, thanks for joining us and listening to The Western Edge. Mm-hmm.